we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin our telephone conference before it gets too late for some of the people on the East Coast. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming. And uh, my name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'm the Consulting Director of Low Vision Education and Training at the Braille Institute of America. And I'm also the Chief of Low Vision at the Center for the Partially Sighted. So tonight's uh, lecture, we're actually going to be recording this, and it will be available in three places. It's being recorded by Airs LA, the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles. And there you could go to www.airsla.org. And there you'll find probably the largest selection of vision-related podcasts. If you click the link Vision, you'll see different types of podcasts that we have performed and presented for Braille Institute and other types of seminars. And we even have a section that's just for, you know, friends and family and for children. So uh, you could go to Airs LA. We also will be putting it up at the Braille Institute website, and that's going to be at www.brailleinstitute.org. And uh, you could also find it at my website, which is www.drbill, that's D-R-B-I-L-L, foundation.org. So uh, tonight we're going to be talking about some of the things to make your vision appointment with your eye doctor really something that's very, very effective and very, very helpful to you. And what I want to begin is by just talking a little bit about some of my experience over the past 20-some-odd years in working with children and also with working with families. I think the most important thing we have to remember is that the first five years of life is a very, very critical time period for not only the development of a child's vision, but also the development of the child's hearing, speech, language, gross motor, fine motor, sensory integration. There's so many different types of skills that a child will develop during this time. So when a child does have a vision impairment, we know that children who suffer from vision impairment can be as much as two to three times delayed in reaching developmental milestones. At the Gassell Institute at Yale University, they studied this and they found that children who have low vision, they may not walk until they're two to three years of age. They might not be able to talk until three to five years of age. And we find that many other aspects of their motor and their cognitive development could be very delayed. So when we think about this, we then have to ask the question, why is that? The reason for this is that the brain is really very highly integrated with vision. In other words, about 75% of the brain is interconnected in one way or another to vision. So when a child sees something, the signals that are received by the visual regions of the brain, it sends signals to the motor regions, to the language regions, regions, and it also is going to affect many other aspects of development. So when there is that kind of a problem where the vision is not being processed or received normally, it is going to be very common that children will be behind and they will be delayed. So with that in mind then, it's going to also be important that you don't only seek an eye doctor, but it's really important that you're going to create a team. 
You really want to develop the dream team for your child. It's kind of like the Olympic basketball team when they had Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, and they were just the greatest team ever. And your child deserves that. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about is how do you create your own dream team? And this is something that you really need to take some time and do a little bit of research and work for yourself. If you can, it's a really a great idea to join any other type of a parent group, for example. If you're part of NAPV or just within your region that you live in, if there's other types of agencies that do work with children, you might join one of these groups and talk to the other people there. You want to talk to other parents. You want to talk to some of the other teachers and talk to some of the other people who are involved in these programs and ask them. Who would you recommend as a great physical therapist? Who do you recommend as a good occupational therapist, as a speech therapist, as an optometrist and an ophthalmologist? Who could be a great teacher for the visually impaired for your child? And as you begin to talk to these parents, you'll suddenly develop a list of names that continue to come up. And this is a really a great start. Now, when it comes to starting this type of treatment, I think the first thing that you have to do is you really have to find a pediatric ophthalmologist. Now, the reason that you want a pediatric ophthalmologist is because we have to really be aware of the physical structures of the eye and the physical structures of the brain that relate to vision. There's a lot of times that children might be born premature, and the retina might suffer from some damage. And if we find a pediatric ophthalmologist, that doctor can actually physically and surgically treat it. And this is something that is going to be very, very important for the development of vision. It's important that you know that there's many, many different types of specialists out there, even among the field of pediatric ophthalmology. There are retina specialists. There are cataract specialists. There's glaucoma specialists. And there's even neuro-ophthalmologists who specialize in the visual regions of the brain. Now, the differences between an ophthalmologist and an optometrist is that the ophthalmologist is a medical doctor who's been trained to perform surgery to treat different types of visual disorders. They will also often prescribe medications, and some of them might even prescribe glasses and contact lenses. So the ophthalmologist that you're going to be looking for is going to be a pediatric ophthalmologist. The second doctor that you want on your team is going to be a low vision optometrist. Now, a low vision optometrist differs from an ophthalmologist in the sense that a low vision optometrist does not perform surgery. The low vision optometrist is trained to be able to identify what are your child's visual strengths and weaknesses. What can your child see? How far can your child see? What colors does your child see best? Where should you present the visual toys to stimulate vision? The optometrist is going to tell you all of these types of things because the optometrist's training is actually in an understanding what functions correspond to what part of the brain and how can it be developed. There's an organization that's called the College of Optometrists in Vision Development, and they could be located at www.covd, standing for College of Optometrists in Vision Development, www.covd. 
vd.org. Now, there you can actually find many optometrists who are developmental optometrists. Now, what's the importance of having a developmental optometrist? Is that the developmental optometrist understands the development of vision. You see, many people are under the impression that when a baby is born, what they see at that time is what they're going to see later. But what we do know from research, and these were Nobel Prize winning research studies, is that the vision of an infant isn't going to be stable. The vision has a very strong prognosis of developing. So, for example, the developmental optometrist will tell you that during the first two months of life, we want to use black and white patterns. We want to hold those patterns at 8 to 16 inches, and we want to use circular objects because that is what a child who's about one to two months is most visually stimulated in. We then know that also this type of pattern stimulation that's presented to the brain is something that's going to help the brain to develop. In studies with kittens, they've realized that a kitten who did not receive enough stimulation, the brain cells did not develop. So, this is what we really want to do with children who have cortical vision impairment. It's critical that we know what colors, what distance, what size, what types of glasses. That are going to be most beneficial to stimulate those visual centers of the brain. So, this is why you need to have both a ophthalmologist and an optometrist. So, how can we take the most advantage of this type of an examination? Well, it begins after you have obtained a list or some names of some people from other people in the community. You want to go ahead, and what I would recommend first. Is that you call those doctors that are on the list. If you do not have an ophthalmologist, you want to first have the first appointment with a pediatric ophthalmologist. The reason for that is because sometimes it's going to be urgent. If we wait a week or two weeks and there happens to be a retinal detachment, that two weeks that we wait could make a difference in how much vision can be developed. When you find out, What is your child's vision problem? You then want to try to make the appointment with a pediatric ophthalmologist that specializes in your child's condition. So, the first thing to do is to go through the list and to call each of these offices. This is sort of a good test. It's kind of like when you're testing out, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You're kind of playing a little test on them, but hey, that's okay. What I find is that. The doctor who's going to be kind enough or take the time to call you back and to answer your questions is the type of doctor that you want for your child. I know that when my wife and I had our kids, that was what I did. I actually called these doctors because I just wanted to find out are they going to be courteous enough to call me back? Because I know that if I have an emergency in the future, I hope that this doctor is going to call me back. And so that's one good way to try to find out. What is this office like? Secondly, when you do call the office, you're probably going to be speaking with the front office, the secretary, or somebody, and you'll get an idea is this really a warm and a caring office, or is the office manager organized? Do they really know what is going to be the calendar and the schedule? So, this is a really, a really good way. Once you have actually interviewed some of these people and maybe spoken to them over the phone, You could then go ahead and set up an appointment. Now, the next thing that I would do at that time 
is that before you're making that appointment, you want to go ahead and you want to think about what is the best time of the day for my child. If you know that your child is just feeling a lot better early in the morning, you want to go ahead and schedule an appointment at that time. If you know your child does better in the afternoon, schedule the appointment in the afternoon. This is something that's very helpful because to us doctors, it's a lot easier to examine a child who is awake as compared to one who's sleeping. And it's also something that's going to make it a lot less stressful for the child. If your child is normally taking naps at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but you schedule an appointment, your child's going to be fussy, and then your child might even associate a negative experience with going to the doctors just from scheduling the appointment at that time. So go ahead and schedule the appointment at a time that you know is going to be the best. Now when you do make that appointment, you should also just talk to the office, or you want to talk to the doctor when you did make that phone call. You might ask them, how long can I expect to be at the office? In some of these cases, some children who might go to the general hospital or some of these other teaching universities, I've had families who have been there for six hours for their exam. And that a lot of times is just really very, very difficult on the child. For a child who might have some other types of medical conditions or might have allergies or have a cold or other types of things, you might not want your child to be exposed to other children in the waiting room. So you might just explain this to the doctor and the doctor or the doctor's secretary will tell you, you know what, let's go ahead and let's try to have you come in at this time. This would really be the best. What I find sometimes it's very helpful to make an appointment right before lunch because usually these doctors aren't going to be late for their lunch. Okay. What I find is that I used to think if you make the appointment at the very first one in the morning at 8 o'clock, that would be the best. But what I find is that many doctor's offices, they schedule the appointments at 8, but the doctors actually do surgery in the morning, and they come in and begin to see the patients at 10.30. So your child will be waiting there a long time. So go ahead and ask so you will know exactly how much time you think that your child might have to wait and then if you find one office that might be a little bit more speedy, you can go ahead and make that appointment that way. Now, another thing that you could also do is if there is going to be a situation that your child might have to wait a long time and that's not going to work out, ask the doctor, would it be okay or would you like to write a prescription for me and I could put the eye drops in while my child is at home? This is something that we have often done for a lot of our patients where we know that we're going to have to dilate the pupils of the eyes. And so what we would often do is we will write a prescription so that the parents could put this eye drop in the eye while the child is asleep. And when they do that at 6 o'clock in the morning, when the child comes in at 9 o'clock, the pupils are dilated and then we don't have to spend as much time. Sometimes if you're in the office and they put drops in, it's going to take sometimes for some children an hour for the drops to take full effect. So this is why it's sometimes good to bring that idea up. Ask them, would you like to write me a prescription and would it be better if I put the drops in beforehand? Now, once you go ahead and you set up a date, you also want to maybe confer with some of your friends or maybe there might be an early intervention specialist who could accompany you. 
This is something that's really, really helpful because, first of all, here it is. You're pushing a stroller or maybe a double stroller and maybe you have other kids as well. It's often a great idea to have somebody come along with you just to help you out. Many times the doctors and the nurses are telling you so much information that you actually can't remember what they're saying because maybe your other child is crying or wants to leave and, you know, you have to handle them. So it really is better to try to keep the other children at home or to arrange to have a neighbor to watch the child or to have somebody else pick up your other children from school. When you do go to the appointment, if you could take somebody with you, that's very, very helpful. You might also ask the office when you make the appointment, ask them, would you like to mail me the information so that I could fill it out at home? I know that it's a lot of times a lot easier to fill out these forms at home where you have everything readily available and you don't have to worry about trying to fill out these forms in a noisy type of a waiting room. You know, you've got kids throwing Legos all over the room and if you've seen some of these offices, it gets pretty crazy in there. So if you fill out the forms at home and then you come with somebody, then you're simply going to drop off the papers and you'll be set and ready to go. Now, as a doctor, what we really like is we really like to offer all the help that we can. But in reality, there's many times that patients don't actually have things prepared. So this makes it a little more, more difficult. One of the things that's very, very helpful, and this is something that Sue Parker Strafasi and her other uh, staff at Braille Institute developed, is they developed a really fantastic notebook. And this is a notebook that has everything in sections. So this is something that you could consider doing. Getting a binder, and if you have a section that's going to have the hospital discharge notes, you might have another section that has your baby's medications. You might have another section that has other types of medical reports. Or you might have another section that has the eye reports. And then this is something that you could keep with you so that if the nurse or the doctor has any questions, you could simply show them the book and they could photocopy what they want. This saves a lot of time because many of these ophthalmologists who specialize in children, they may see as many as 70 children in one morning. 70. So you go figure. If they have 70 kids in one morning in a matter of four hours, you know, they're seeing close to 16 to 17 kids you know, in, in, in one hour. And so that doesn't really leave them too much time to wait for you and to ask you, do you have many other questions? What I find to be another great thing to do, and there's a section in this notebook that Sue Parker has made, it actually is a place on the front where you can actually write the questions. While you're at home and maybe you're with your husband or your wife, think of those questions that you want to ask the doctor and just write them down. This is something that's very, very helpful so that you can actually write these questions down. Some of the questions that I think are really very, very pertinent are, number one, what do you think is my child's eye diagnosis? You know, what is a diagnosis? Number two, what do you think is the prognosis of my child's vision? Do you think that this is something that typically gets worse, or is it something that's stable, or can it be improved? The third question that I think should really be asked to all doctors, and, and, and don't be 
worried that the doctor's offended, but would you recommend a specialist that my child should see? Many times they might refer you to a specialist who's in a different part of the country. They might tell you, but as a parent, you just want to know who is there who could help my child. Number four, you want to ask, are there any medical treatments that my child needs urgently? And if so, why? This is something that's really important because many times the doctor might say, well, your four-month-old baby has a crossed eye and I recommend that we do eye muscle surgery. And then you have to say, why? Is this only going to improve the cosmetic appearance of the eyes or is it actually going to improve my child's vision? This is something that's very, very important. And the reason for this is because as a developmental optometrist, we know that the part of the brain that controls the two eyes together as a team, a lot of times isn't developed till 12 months. And this is why we often see children who have eye muscle surgery at too young of an age they have to have multiple surgeries. So in some cases, the doctor might recommend a surgery, but you really have to say, Does that, is that something my child really needs to have? Okay. And then number five, you want to then go ahead and ask, are there any other types of resources where I may be able to get more help? The doctor might refer you to the regional center or to an early intervention program. In some cases, they may even refer you to a low-vision optometrist. And then number six, you want to then say, will my child benefit from glasses? Many times, a eye doctor is so specialized that they don't even think about glasses. And then number seven, do you recommend vision stimulation for my child? And this is something that's very powerful because when the ophthalmologist recommends vision stimulation for your child, this is something that you could then take back to the regional center. So as a doctor, when I was in practice before I went blind, I loved, I loved those parents who were engineers because they had every question typed out. And I didn't have to ask them questions. They had everything laid out there for me. I knew that child's birth history. I knew if that child was premature. I knew if that child had a brain hemorrhage. I knew if that child was crawling. I knew if the child was walking. They had all of these things out there for me so I could quickly look at that paper and I knew everything about this child. And then I knew every question that they wanted to ask. So as I did my examination, I would just one by one go and I would write down the answers right on that piece of paper for them and explain it to them. So for me, this was something that really allowed the examination to be very, very efficient. Now, what's also a little bit different is because the developmental optometrists, we spend a lot of time to educate the parents as to what can be done so that they know every activity that they can be doing to help their child's vision develop. We teach them how to do those kinds of activities. So what's also very important is that if your child does have a vision teacher or an early intervention specialist, that you bring them to the meeting too. If you bring them to the examination, 
they could then also learn from the developmental optometrist how to do these exercises and activities. So, so write down the questions and you could simply hand those questions to the doctor and the doctor would really appreciate that and you'll have all your questions answered. Another thing that you could also do to save time so that the doctor could spend more time answering your questions is that you could be prepared. One of the things that Sue has in their notebook for the Braille Institute is that there's a page that just kind of has a general history. And if you want to make one, this is how you could do that. What you want to do is you want to talk about, first of all, what is the prenatal history? What was the prenatal history? So you might say that your child might have been involved, you and your child might have been involved in a car accident and there was trauma at 26 weeks. You then want to talk about birth history. Okay, So there you want to write down how many weeks gestation was it? Maybe your child was born after 28 weeks gestation. The next thing is that we're going to talk about postnatal history. So just right after birth and such. But we want to say, did, was, there any, was there any problems where your child wasn't breathing? Okay, You might write down, wasn't breathing at birth. The cord was wrapped around the neck. Okay, Any of these types of things you could write. There might have been hydrocephalus. Anything that you sort of remember, you could just write that down on that line. And then the next thing you want to then write down is what is the developmental history? So you could then in that section write down feeding. Does your child feed normally? You can next do something such as the head, neck, and trunk control. Can your child support his or her own head? This is really important to the doctor because if a child can't really support his or her own head, then we want to do the examination of the eyes while the child's lying down. Because otherwise your child might be using all of his or her energy just to try to keep the head straight. We then want to find out about can the child crawl? Does the child roll over? Does the child walk? You could just briefly write anything about the gross motor skills. The next section, you just might write about the vision. What do you notice? Is there anything that you notice? You could write down, maybe you're noticing that the eyes shake, or that one eye is drifting outward, or the other eye is going inward, or sometimes your child just tends to stare off in space, while other times your child is very alert. And then the next thing in the vision part, we could write a little bit about any kind of medical procedures. You might say eye muscle surgery in 2009. You could write down who is the eye doctor. And the last thing, you could just write down any of these kinds of medications that your child might be taking. So if you go ahead and just do this on your computer, you'll have a single page. You could hand this to the doctor and let the doctor keep it in his or her chart then the doctor doesn't have to spend you know 10 minutes asking you those types of questions and you feeling nervous because you don't remember okay it's so often I would ask parents which eye is crossing and they're so embarrassed they'd say you know Dr. Bill I don't know 
but it's so common because, you know, the examination is a very, very busy and stressful time there. Okay. The last thing that I like to suggest while you're making these types of appointments and you're there, we talked about bringing a friend. You might also want to bring a tape recorder. If your husband or your mom or your dad couldn't accompany you, a lot of times they want to know. I always recommend that people bring a micro cassette recorder and just tape it. Then they don't have to go home and try to, you know, recite everything the doctor said. They could just play it back. So bring the tape recorder, bring your notebook that has all of this information, and you also want to bring some toys, your child's favorite toys. You want to bring some food. And you also need to bring some dry diapers and some wipes because it almost never fails that as soon as we're ready to have the exam, then I smell something and they got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) So in this way, if the child's getting a little bit fussy and hungry, you know what? We could feed the baby and then the baby stops crying and we could continue the exam. Or the doctor could use some of these toys to see how your child is tracking or just to kind of calm your child and keep your child very, very comfortable. So these are just some of the recommendations that I think are could be very, very helpful to make you get the most out of the examination. Number one, again, find the dream team. Create the dream team so you have a team of professionals to help out. You could find the dream team by just joining some of these groups and asking some of the other people, other parents, other teachers, who do they recommend? Number two, go ahead and interview these people. If they're not courtesy, courteous enough to call you back, then you might, you know, be a little bit skeptical as to whether or not you and your child are going to get the best of care. This doctor in the office might be a bit too busy for you. Number three, schedule the appointment at the time that your child is going to be doing the best. Number four, try to leave, you know, the brothers and sisters and others at home. That sometimes makes it a little bit more difficult. And you want to go ahead and to bring your notebook, a cassette recorder, a neighbor, some food, some diapers, some wipes, and anything that you might need for yourself. And the last thing is to go ahead and prepare Prepare a list of questions so that you can give that to the doctor so the doctor will make certain that he or she answers every one of your questions. And also, prepare the history form. You can write all those things down, and it will give the doctor a little bit more time to spend with you. So, I hope that uh, this information is helpful to you, and we'll open it up to some questions if anybody has any questions. Okay? And we'll start in New York, just in case New York people have had to go to bed (laughs) pretty soon. (laughs) Are there any questions? Yeah, the question is, what about a 5- or a 7-year-old child who has already been examined by some doctors and the family is looking for a second opinion? I would really do the same thing. I think we first have to find out who are some of the doctors that other parents have been pleased with. What I usually find that parents are usually pleased when the doctor explains things. On the other hand, if the doctor is really technically excellent but does not explain things, that's usually when I find that parents are often most dissatisfied. So I would really try to find out from other parents who is the person that one might recommend. And again, try to find a time that your 5 or 7-year-old is really going to be most alert 
or is going to be able to cooperate during all of this type of testing. And again, the same type of thing, when you're giving the doctor the history, you might state that your child has been seen by a couple of other doctors, and for example, one doctor has recommended contact lenses, and another doctor recommended glasses, and that you're basically here for another type of opinion. Uh, so that's just going to give the doctor a fair chance to be able to answer those questions. But overall, yes, I would say that the same step would be very, very helpful. Another question? Yeah, the comment is, for a child who has cortical vision impairment, that a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist would be part of that dream team. And absolutely, in this case, probably the first doctor that we would start with would be a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist, and the second doctor would then be the low-vision developmental optometrist. So depending on what is the diagnosis of the child, we're going to look for a pediatric ophthalmologist that specializes in that condition. If the child was born with congenital cataracts, we want a pediatric cataract ophthalmologist. If the child was born with retinopathy of prematurity, we're going to look for a pediatric retina specialist. And if it's cortical vision impairment, then we're going to look for a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist. Okay, are there any other questions or comments that any other things others want to share with the other uh, people listening tonight? For a child who has a diagnosis of cerebral palsy and cortical vision impairment, probably the first thing that would be helpful to do is to be seen by a pediatric neurologist or a neuro-ophthalmologist. And the reason for this is that they would then be able to analyze the MRIs or if there's been CAT scans that have been performed or any of those other types of medical examination so that they can determine is there a specific region of the brain that may have been affected more so. So for example, we sometimes will see that a child might have suffered from a little bit more insult to the left side of the brain, and that might actually control and affect certain aspects of their vision to a certain level. So the doctor might then recommend some prism glasses to help to expand or to make your child become more aware of that visual field. So it's very good to know the relationship between the form and the function we could look very carefully at these types of imaging studies to find out if there was periventricular leukomalacia, for example. And many children who have this condition, they may have reduced peripheral vision in the lower field. And this makes it very difficult for them to reach to try to grab their cup or their bottle or food or toys. And we then want to modify the way that we perform the vision stimulation to, again, teach the child how to look down into that lower field. So any kind of a neurological condition, cerebral palsy, cortical vision impairment, optic nerve hypoplasia, I would probably then start by asking my primary pediatrician to refer me to a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist neuro so that they can then communicate and talk to the pediatric neurologist and actually interpret those records. Yeah, and I would say that if you already have a pediatric neurologist, you can ask, is there a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist that you might recommend in this particular area? 
another another resource. Now I know that he is retired now, but his name is uh, Dr. Craig Hoyt, C R E I G Hoyt H O Y T, and he's up at San Francisco's Smith Kettlewell. That's where he was, and he's a pediatric neuro ophthalmologist. Now, what he may be able to do is to refer you to somebody that he recommends. He is actually one of the gurus in the area of cortical vision impairment. So uh, he and William Good are people that are, are very, very well-known and respected in that area. So that's a, a great thing to maybe communicate with Dr. Hoyt or Dr. Good, and maybe that they can refer you to a person that might be uh, in, in, in the Palo Alto area in Stanford. Okay, are there any other questions? Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Sue Parker Strafasi and, and, and she can, uh, maybe give some more information about the notebooks that they have at, uh, the Braille Institute. And again, for those of you who would like to share this presentation with others, you can let others know that we do this once, once a month. And the recordings are, again, available at the uh, Braille Institute website, www.brailleinstitute.org, and also at Airs LA, and that's at www.airsla.org. So uh, thank you very, very much.